in the morning. In the morning. I feel so bad in the middle of the day. Yeah. I feel so bad in the evening. In the evening. That's why I'm going to the river to wash my sins away. I'm going Sister to Rosetta Tharp was an American singer, songwriter, guitarist, and a pioneer of mid-20th century music. She attained popularity in the 1930s and 40s with her gospel recordings characterized by a unique mixture of spiritual lyrics and rhythmic accompaniment that was a precursor of rock and roll. She was the first great recording star of gospel music and among the first gospel musicians to appeal to rhythm and blues and rock and roll audiences, later being referred to as the original soul sister and the godmother of rock and roll. No, 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 She influenced rock and roll musicians including Little Richard, Chuck Berry, Elvis Presley, and Jerry Lee Lewis. When Johnny Cash gave his induction speech at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, he referred to Sister Rosetta Tharp as his favorite singer when he would listen to her on the radio as a child. WHBQ, and they had a program on there called Red Hot and Blue late at night where they played back then what they called race music. And there I heard some of my my earliest heroes. And it was at the home of the blues record shop where I bought my first recording of Sister Rosetta Tharp singing those great gospel songs. Willing to cross the line between sacred and secular by performing her music of light in the darkness of nightclubs and concert halls with big bands behind her, Sister Rosetta Tharp pushed spiritual music into the mainstream and helped pioneer the rise of pop gospel. I'm so glad somehow I've got salvation now. It keeps the spirit moving in my soul. Lottie Henry, a member of Tharp's backup vocal group, the Rosettes, remembers Sister Rosetta Tharp's talent. She could play a guitar like nobody else. Nobody. Here's Joe Boyd, American record producer and writer who played a crucial role in the recording careers of Pink Floyd, R.E.M., and 10,000 Maniacs. I think Rosetta was a hugely important figure. Let's you know, She was really unique as a guitar player. She had a big influence on somebody like Chuck Berry, who was one of the most influential guitar players in the world. And here's Gordon Stoker from Elvis Presley's backing band, The Jordanaires. She did incredible picking. That's what really attracted Elvis was uh, her picking. And he liked her singing too, but he liked that picking first <laughs> uh, because it was so different. Don't you know now this train is a clean train? Everybody riding in Jesus' name. And here's Gail Wald, Sister Rosetta Tharp's biographer. She had a major impact on artists like Elvis Presley. When you see Elvis Presley singing um, early songs in his career, I think if you imagine that he is channeling Rosetta Tharp, it's not an image that I think we're used to thinking about when we think about rock and roll history. We don't think about the black woman behind the young white man. Sister Rosetta Tharp was born on March 20th, 1950 in Cotton Plant, Arkansas, not far from the Mississippi River. 
Her parents, Katie Bell and Willis Atkins, were both cotton pickers. Here's biographer Gail Wald and Ira Tucker, friend of Sister Tharp and lead singer with the American gospel group The Dixie Hummingbirds, talking about the influence that Rosetta Tharp's parents had on her as a child. We don't know too much about Rosetta's father. What we do know about the father is that Willis Atkins could sing, and so it's possible that some of her gift of singing came from her father. Her mother um, was an evangelist for the Church of God in Christ. Her mother was incredibly passionate about the church. Rosetta's mother, Miss Katie Bell, was what we called her. She was a very traditional person, and basically she was what, what we called a stomp-down Christian. I mean, that's one that enjoyed stamping her feet and patting her hands and celebrating what she believes in. And the reason that I think that Rosetta really became such a strong woman was because of her mother. Because her mother, again, was the same type of person. She had no fear. She would take her guitar, she would take her tambourine, she would take her chair, and she would sit outside and play for people and try to convert them and to get them to go to church. In 1921, Katie Bell left Rosetta's father to become a traveling evangelist for the Church of God in Christ. Taking six-year-old Rosetta, she left Cotton Plant, Arkansas and joined the exodus of poor black Southerners heading north. There was work in Chicago and even something more crucial for the young Rosetta. Migrants brought the blues from the Mississippi Delta and jazz from New Orleans. Here's Anthony Halebutt, Grammy Award-winning record producer, and Gail Wald, Sister Rosetta Tharp's biographer, on this important time in Rosetta's life. Rosetta is often seen as a country singer, but that's a fallacy. Her major development occurred very early. She moved to Chicago when she was six. She and Mother Bell joined Robert's Temple Church of God in Christ, and the Chicago Sanctified Church was bubbling with musicians and new songs. And so she was exposed to something that was new. It was not rural, it was an urban kind of religious singing. It was at that church where she first really started performing, um, where she was the main attraction. There's a great story that has her being put when she's six years old on the top of the piano, um, holding a guitar, being put there so that she could be seen by the congregation and playing and singing and charming everyone with her talent and her precociousness. And when we come back, more on the life of Sister Rosetta Tharp, the godmother of rock and roll who influenced everyone from Elvis Presley to Johnny Cash and Chuck Berry. Brilliant. I wait a 
stick like glue Stick because I'm stuck on you This is Our American Stories. You're listening to Elvis Presley. Some people think he was the king of rock and roll. But Elvis Presley said that the real queen of rock and roll, the godmother of rock and roll, was Sister Rosetta Tharp. And we're listening to her story right now. Jesse's doing a great job, as always, on these music stories. I would urge you, if you get a moment, put in the words Sister Rosetta Tharp and Didn't It Rain on a YouTube search, and you will see something extraordinary. And everything we're talking about you're going to see the way she held that Gibson SG, a white Gibson SG, as she comes off a carriage in Manchester by a train station in a white mink coat, gets in front of a small uh, ensemble. There are a bunch of white British kids waiting for this African-American lady in a white mink coat holding a white Gibson SG, doing the duck walk, all the moves that you'd see from Chuck Berry and Keith Richards. She created so many of them. But let's now return to the story of Sister Rosetta Tharp. I'm so glad somehow I've got salvation now It keeps the spirit moving in my soul Here's Anthony Halebutt, Grammy Award-winning record producer, talking about Sister Rosetta Tharp's early performances before her teenage years. There's something within me Not just holding the rain she told me that when she was a girl, not even 10, she was immediately seen as an all-purpose musician. She'd go to a revival and she'd play her guitar. And if the people would get happy afterward and shout, she would drop the guitar and run to the piano and accompany them with her piano chords. And then she might get up and cut a couple of dance steps herself. She was a phenomenal showwoman. On life battlefield. Throughout her teenage years, Sister Rosetta Tharp was taken by her mother from city to city to perform in churches, tabernacles, and revival meetings, winning the hearts of thousands with her demure looks, angelic voice, and unique guitar style. She soon became a nationwide celebrity within the church, and this Philadelphia church is one of the first she performed in back in the 1930s, Church of God in Christ. Here's church parishioner Helen Henderson remembering Sister Rosetta Tharp. When I saw Rosetta, I was, a, I was about maybe 10 years old. Oh, she had, she had the most beautiful voice and the way she could speak to you. It made you feel different. You knew something was going on, even if you didn't understand really what it was. And that's the way it was with me because I was a child. And here's the pastor of that church, Robert Hargrove. Many of the hymns were expression of suffering and wanting to survive, many of them. And when she came and they saw the expression of her, the freedom that she expressed in her singing and dancing, it woke up the congregation. It focused them on something that was on the inside that they never gave expression to. Rosetta would start looking up. She didn't look at anybody. She looked up as if she saw God. And it was as if God was in her and she was communing with Him rather than with a human being. When Rosetta Tharp was 19 years old in 1934, her mother married her off to a preacher, the Reverend Tommy Tharp. For the next four years, she and Tommy worked for the church. Her job was to draw the crowds while he preached from the pulpit. But in spite of her mother's good intentions, the marriage was not working out. 
Here's Rosetta Tharp's best friend, Roxy Moore, remembering her old friend while sitting behind the keys at the piano. Look up! Look up! And see your maker before Gabriel. I met Sister Rosetta in the summer of 1937. She seemed a little bit glad that she was married, but she didn't seem to be very happy. And that's the reason I took to her. Because, you know, I wanted to just make her happy, make her feel as special as she really was. But I didn't have any idea that she and Tommy wouldn't make it. Ira Tucker, longtime friend of Sister Rosetta Tharp and lead singer for the Dixie Hummingbirds, remembers Rosetta's first husband a little differently. He was a tyrant. Um, From what my parents used to say and talk about, uh, he seemed to um, come out of the real, real sub-old school and believed in the kind of almost caveman-like attitude towards women. She was just a meal ticket. She was a performer and he used her to bring people to his churches and he would put her up to sing. And after a few years, she had enough and she said, you know what, I'm gonna leave all of it. And she made that big jump. Rosetta then left her husband and took her mother to New York. In a city full of nightclubs, Rosetta was soon noticed and offered a spot at the prestigious Cotton Club, singing to a white audience. Four, five, five. Four, five, But the song she was given by the men in charge made no mention of God. The lyrics were about pleasing her man. Here again is Roxy Moore and Ira Tucker. It was like a bomb had dropped on gospel music when she flipped. (laughs) It it was like, what? You know, I can't believe she's... That's Sister Rosetta Tharp. She's not supposed to be singing that kind of music. Oh, she was criticized and ostracized. I mean, the church people just, you know, just thought that she had just gone way off. Actually, it was hurtful to a lot of people because they felt as though they had lost something. They had something and it was great, but now it's gone. And they they viewed it almost like a death. You know, Rosetta is, she's gone. She went over. She's in like another world. Having discovered that she loved God and nightclubs, Rosetta decided to sing gospel in church and join the secular world of show business at the same time. The offers began to pour in. She was wanted by all of the big bands of the day, and in October of 1938, she signed a contract with Decca Records. Sister Tharp was also beginning to stir controversy. Here's record producer Anthony Halebutt on what was happening at the time. Her first hit was a song called Rock Me. And the the lyric is, Jesus, hear me praying. She sang, won't you hear me praying? 
So when, when she came to the chorus, when she sang, rock me, and growled, rock, it sounded really, to many people, like uh, an invitation, and not to the altar. And here's biographer Gail Wald talking about this part of Sister Rosetta's life. Recording the song in that particular way marked her as someone who was having the nerve to reinterpret a spiritual song for a secular audience. I think there was also a piece of her that was just rebellious. She does some very risque material with Lucky Millinder, most notably a song called Tall Skinny Papa, which was a big hit for Millinder's band, and she was the lead singer on that. And she sings, I want a tall skinny papa. There's no way of <laughs> misinterpreting I want a tall skinny papa for anything that has to do with um, spirituality. Roxy Moore also remembers that song all too well. The next thing I heard was this recording out a Rosetta with the tall skinny papa. So I said, it can't be Rosetta. So I went and bought the record. And after I listened to it, I said, oh my goodness, sister's out there singing that stuff. So when I, I saw her, I said, sister, I heard you tell Lucky Milliner that you weren't going to sing that stuff. She said, when I saw that contract, he had a clause in there that I had to sing whatever he gave me to sing, she said, and I didn't know it. And I had a seven-year contract with him. She said, and I had to do it. I have a question to ask you. Want you to tell me if you can. I want somebody to tell me just what is the soul of man. Following the controversy with Tall Skinny Papa, Rosetta resolved to stick with the songs she knew best, gospel songs. Her loyal followers back in the church got over the shock and stayed with her while she gained new fans that loved her music. This wasn't easy to pull off, but somehow, she did it. By the age of 25, Sister Rosetta Tharp was rated among the finest popular musicians of the day. In less than five years, she had established herself in a male-dominated industry, singing the songs she chose to sing in her own distinctive way. She was now rich, famous, and officially gospel music's first superstar. And when we come back, more on the life of Sister Rosetta Tharp. This is Our American Stories, and now our final segment on the life of Sister Rosetta Tharp. In a highly segregated society, black and white musicians performing together back then was considered highly taboo. However, Sister Rosetta Tharp was more than happy to defy convention. All we hear church people say, they are in this holy way. There are strange things happening every day. Gordon Stoker, from a band called the Jordanaires, remembers one such act of defiance. She was more or less a pioneer in asking us to even perform with her. She called us her, her four little white babies. 
And I thought it was so cute that, you know, that she referred to us as that, as, as that way. I thought that was just something I'll never forget. And we just loved to sing with her because when she started snapping her finger, man, and started singing on a tune, you couldn't help but sing. I know the first time we worked with her, they, they booked us. We went to the we went to the stage door, and some man came to the door, and uh, and we, one of us said, "Well, we are we are the Jordanaires," and he said, mm, "You you are the Jordanaires? Well, he said, this is going to be a surprise to our audience." Sister Rosetta didn't tell him that we were white. <laughs> she booked us, but she didn't tell him we were white. And it, it, when we first went out on the stage, they didn't really know how to take us, but then we started singing, working on the building. But then on then we were in. By the age of 30, Rosetta had survived two brief and unhappy marriages. In 1951, Sister Rosetta Tharp invited 25,000 people to her next wedding to her manager, Russell Morrison, followed by a vocal performance at Griffith Stadium in Washington, D.C. This was a massive publicity stunt. They would sell tickets to her fans and the recording rights to Decca Records. Here's biographer Gail Wald. So she records uh, her wedding ceremony and a concert that follows it in 1951. 25,000 people come out and pay admission prices to attend her wedding. They bring wedding gifts for her. They bring crystal. They bring... Um, dishes for her. Someone even buys her a television set. It's a total showbiz move. And at the same time, it's a, it's a wedding ceremony um, conducted by a minister, a real wedding ceremony. Despite criticism from her friends for marrying her own manager, Sister Rosetta Tharp remained married to Russell for the next 22 years. Meanwhile, back in the Mississippi Delta region, young white musicians were just beginning to discover the raw energy and complex rhythms of African-American gospel. George Klein, a friend of Elvis Presley's, describes the scene. There was a hip thing happening in Memphis at that time. There was a little church, and it was cool. It was a cool thing to do on Sunday nights only. You would go there, and there would be Elvis and some of the other guys from the area, and it was unusual because back in those days, white people had to sit in the back, and it was roped off. And we would sit back there, and we would watch these black spiritual singers sing on Sunday night. The thing that gospel spiritual music brought to popular music was feeling. Gospel spiritual music put the guts and the feeling and the real soul into it. And uh, people like Elvis and Johnny Cash and Jerry Lee Lewis and Carl Perkins and those guys, Buddy Holly, if you will, they saw that. And they adapted to that, and that really was the essence of rock and roll. Thinking about it, Sister Rosetta Thorpe, she had this great feeling, and that's what Elvis was looking for, feeling, because that's, what was, that's where it all came from. By the early 60s, Sister Rosetta Tharp's influence was continuing to spread as yet another generation fell under her spell. Here's a recording of the one and only Bob Dylan talking about Sister Rosetta Tharp on the radio. Sister Rosetta Tharp was anything but ordinary and plain. She was a big, good-looking woman and divine, not to mention sublime and splendid. She was a powerful force of nature, a guitar-playing, singing evangelist. It's a clean train. 
Everybody ride it if you can. You know, she traveled to England with Muddy Waters and a whole bunch of other blues performers in the early 60s. And I'm sure there are a lot of young English guys who picked up an electric guitar after getting a look at her. In the summer of 1964, Sister Rosetta Tharp was booked to perform in a British gospel television music special. The musicians were all American, the audience, English students. The venue, an old railway station just outside Manchester, England. Joe Boyd, the tour manager of the 1964 folk, blues, and gospel caravan, remembers that performance. The Manchester gig was a curiosity in the middle of the tour for us. It was kind of bizarre, but you know, we were all new to England and we were aware of all this interest in blues and gospel. We all thought it was strange, the setup with the audience on one platform and the musicians on the other. And she rose to the occasion. She loved the drama of the situation and sort of trying to bridge that gap between the platforms and sell the whole thing across the, the track to the audience. By now, Sister Rosetta Tharp was 49 years old and she had been touring on the road for 40 of those years. But even in cold, wet, windy England, the magic was still there. As she arrived on a horse-drawn carriage, walked to the stage, strapped on a white Gibson SG, and began to sing, Didn't It Rain? Didn't it rain, children? Rain, oh, yes. Didn't it? Yes, didn't it? You know it did, didn't it? Oh, oh, yes, how it rained. While Rosetta was away in Europe, her mother was becoming increasingly frail. In 1968, Katie Bell died. For 53 years, she had stuck close to her daughter, through good times and bad, and the one constant figure reminding Rosetta of her faith in God. The loss took a heavy, heavy toll on Rosetta. She became increasingly depressed, and to make matters worse, she was diagnosed with diabetes. There is a divine power. I believe it. I don't know about you, but I got to believe it, because I was raised that way. I sing this song. Made in 1970 in Denmark, this is the last known recording of Sister Rosetta Tharp performing. Just Lord, take my hand, lead me on, and let me stand. I'm tired, you know, I work so hard. And I'm weak. My body is warm. Rosetta's friend, Roxy Moore, noticed a black spot on Rosetta's foot one day and told her to have it checked out by a doctor. Roxy Moore and Ira Tucker described what happened next. Through the storm. She wouldn't listen to anybody. So the next thing, foot started turning black. Then she did have to go to the doctor. Then they found out they had to cut a leg off. Just to say. Sometimes she would call me and say, Sister, please come. Please come to see me. And I would say, All right, I'm coming. But the last few months I didn't go because, you know, Russell was acting like he didn't want nobody taking over from him. When I went over to see her and said she was in the bed and she was 
And she, she would say, where's Russell? I'd say, downstairs. And she would say, he's asking you about shows, right? And I'd say, no, he didn't say anything. He said, yes, he is. He, he wants to know if I'm going back. She said, and I'm going back. But I'm not going to tell anybody when I'm coming back. But I am coming back. But she never did. On October 9th, 1973, the eve of a scheduled recording session, Sister Rosetta Tharp passed away in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, as a result of a stroke. She was buried in Northwood Cemetery in Philadelphia. In 2008, some 35 years after Rosetta's death, the governor of Pennsylvania declared that the 11th of January will be known as Sister Rosetta Tharp Day. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. Didn't it and great job as always, Jesse. This is our American stories. This is our American stories, and it doesn't have to be a holiday for us to honor our veterans and thank them for all of their efforts. They've faced the realities of war and still carry it into their everyday lives once they come home. Ben Sledge is a wounded combat veteran with tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. He spent 11 years in the U.S. Army, serving a portion of it under the Special Operations Command. He has received the Bronze Star, Purple Heart, and two Army Commendation Medals. Ben now works within the music industry for Heart Support, a nonprofit that helps millennials battling addiction, suicide ideation, depression, sexual abuse, loneliness, broken relationship, and a host of other issues. Here he is beginning a conversation that we might not otherwise have. You can shoot her, the first sergeant tells me, technically. We're standing on a rooftop watching black smoke pillars rise from a section of the city where two of my teammates are taking machine gun fire. Below the small cluster of homes we've taken over is taking sporadic fire as well. He hands me his rifle with a high-powered scope and says, see for yourself. It's the six-year-old girl who gives me flowers. We call her the flower girl. She hangs around our combat outpost because we give her candy and hugs. She gives us flowers in return. What everyone else at the outpost knew, except for me until that day, was that she also carried weapons for insurgents. Sometimes during the midst of a firefight, she would carry ammunition across the street to unknown assailants. According to the rules of engagement, we could shoot her. No one ever did. Not even when the first sergeant morbidly reassured them on a rooftop in the middle of Iraq. Other soldiers didn't end up as lucky. Sometimes they would find themselves paired off against a woman or a teenager intent on killing them, so they pulled the trigger. One of the sniper teams I worked with recounted an evening where he laid up a pile of people trying to plant an IED. It was a turkey shoot, he told me laughing. Then he got quiet and said, eventually they sent out this woman and this dumb kid. I didn't need to ask what happened. His voice said it all. I often wonder what would have happened if the flower girl pointed a rifle at me, but I'm afraid I already know. The thought didn't matter anyway. There was enough baggage from our tours in Afghanistan and Iraq that made coming home a place of uncertainty, anger, and confusion. Not as I had been led to believe, a warm celebration of safety. 
People only want to hear the band of brothers stories, the one with guts and gusto, not the one where you jam a gun in an old woman's face and shoot a kid. I pause and then add, look around the room for a second. Andy surveys the restaurant we're in for a moment while I lean in with a half-sardonic smile. How many people can even relate to what we've been through? What would they rather hear about? How Starbucks is giving away free lattes and puppies this week? Or how a soldier feels guilty because he pulled a trigger, lost a friend, or did morally questionable things and more? Hell, I want to hear about the latte giveaway, especially if it's pumpkin spice. This eases the tension, and he smiles. Annie and I feel like we don't fit in. We met a few years ago at the church where he works and where I volunteer. Of the thousands of people that attend, we are a handful of veterans in the congregation. It's often few and far between that I meet other veterans, and those that I do know or have met typically end up running in the same circles. Years ago, Andy fought in the siege of Fallujah. Readjusting to normal life after deployment didn't happen for us. Instead, we found ourselves overly angry, depressed, violent, and drinking a lot. We couldn't talk to people about war or the cost of it because, well, how do you talk about morally reprehensible things that have left a bruise on your soul? The guilt and moral tension many veterans feel are not necessarily being dubbed as post-traumatic stress disorder any longer, but moral injury. Moral injury refers to the emotional shame and psychological damage incurred when a soldier has to do things that violate their sense of right and wrong. Shooting a woman or child, killing another human, watching a friend die, black humor and laughing about situations that would normally disgust them. Because so few in America have served, they can no longer relate to their peers, friends, family for fear of being viewed as some type of monster or lauded as a hero when they feel the things they did were morally ambiguous or wrong given the nature of the situations they were involved in. The gap between the citizen and the soldier is growing ever wider, whereas in World War II the entire nation's focus was on purchasing war bonds and defeating the Nazis, today's populace is quickly amused by the latest Kardashian scandal on TV because the populace is more concerned about enjoying their freedoms and going about their day-to-day lives, the veteran can feel like an outcast. As though nothing they did mattered for a country that asked them to go. This is part of the problem with the alienation a soldier feels. People can quickly point out that they didn't force them to volunteer for the military and fight in the war. They could have stayed home. The counterpoint to that argument is that because we have transitioned to an all-volunteer force, Those that are opposed should be thanking their lucky stars as the volunteer troops are bearing that burden as opposed to having a draft take place in which they could be in the lottery. Additionally, regardless of whether you're Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, Communist, Liberal, Conservative, Conscientious, Subjector, or Pacifist, we all sent the soldier overseas. Because we live in a democracy, we vote to put men and women in charge of our governing affairs who send troops overseas. Though we may have voted for someone else or even opposed to sending troops overseas, it does not change the fact that we have put ourselves under the governance of the United States. By living in any country in the world, you are submitting yourself to their governing body and the laws, even if you don't vote. Every country on earth has a military of some sort or defense in place, and the lawmakers elected or dictators ruling send men and young women to fight in foreign lands, sometimes unjustly. By shirking responsibility, we only alienate our soldiers more. The moral quagmires they face on the battlefield only continue to dump the weight of shame and guilt onto their shoulders while we all enjoy the benefits of passing the buck and asking, whose fault is it really? On March 3, 1986, 11 years after the end of the Vietnam War, Metallica released their critically acclaimed album, 
Master of Puppets. On the album, a song entitled Disposable Heroes told a story of a young man being used as cannon fodder in the midst of a war and the terror that enveloped him on the battlefield. Three years later, Metallica would go on to release One, a song about a soldier who has lost all limbs and waits helplessly for death. The song would go on to win a Grammy for Best Metal Performance. In an odd twist, both songs are amazingly popular among members of the United States military. During my time at the John F. Kennedy Special Warfare Center, we had an entire platoon that could practically sing every last lyric to one. In Afghanistan and Iraq, these songs were on playlists to get soldiers amped before missions. We sang songs about being used by the populace to die on their behalf and coming home as a vegetable, as crazy as that sounds. We sang those songs because they felt true. And the reason they feel true is because of the conversation we refused to have with the country. Amy Abaddon, a Navy psychologist, stated in an interview regarding moral injury that civilians are lucky that we still have a sense of naivety about the, what the world is like. The average American means well, but what they need to know is that these military men and women are seeing incredible evil and coming home without weighing on them and not knowing how to fit back into society. What many don't realize is that a 2004 study found that grief over losing a combat buddy was comparable more than 30 years later to that of a bereaved spouse whose partner had died in the previous six months. The soul wounds we experience are much greater and require the society as a whole to come alongside us as opposed to pointing us to the VA. In most other cultures, soldiers had purification rites when returning home. These rites occurred in a broad spectrum of warriors that ranged from the Roman centurion to the Navajo to the medieval knight. Perhaps most fascinating is that soldiers returning home from the Crusades were instructed to observe a period of purification that involved the Christian church and their community. Even though the church had sanctioned the Crusades, they viewed taking another life as morally wrong and damaging to the soul of their knights. In today's era, churches typically put veterans on stage and praise their heroics or speak of a great battle they've overcome while drawing spiritual parallels for their congregation. But they don't talk about war and the moral inequality we're asking our soldiers to bear on their behalf. Dr. Jonathan Shea, the clinical psychologist who coined the term moral injury, says that in order for the soldier and society to find healing, we must come together. He states that we must come alongside the soldier and confess, what you did was done in our name at our request. We cannot bear your physical wounds or your psychological scars but we can bear the moral responsibility with you. Your transgressions and more, they are our transgressions too. We confess this together and seek forgiveness together. Whether you're opposed to or agree with war, what we must remember is that these are our fellow brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, flesh and blood, who are desperate to reconnect with a world they feel no longer understands them. We must try and find common ground together. We're not asking you to agree with our actions, but help us bear the burden of carrying them on behalf of the country you live in. A staggering 22 veterans take their lives every day. And I can guarantee you part of that is because of the citizen-soldier divide. But what if it didn't have to be that way? What if we could help our men and women in uniform bear the weight of this burden they carry? Maybe we rethink exactly what war costs us and what we've asked of those who've gone on our behalf. 
In the end, no one in their right mind wants war. We want peace. And no one wants it more than the soldier. As General Douglas MacArthur eloquently put it, the soldier above all others prays for peace, for he must suffer and bear the deepest wounds and scars of war. And thank you, Benjamin Sledge. And what he says is so true. You know, take a listen to our hour on Major Dick Winters. Towards the end of his life, he was talking about this very same thing, and this is when there were a lot of survivors to commiserate with. So when you see a soldier who's fought, heed the words of Ben Sledge. This is Our American Stories, the story of a hero and a wounded hero in the soul. Thank you, Glenn. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our Turning Point series, where we hear from folks about turning points in their lives, what it was, what life was like before it, after it, and where they are now. And today's story comes to us from Brave Magazine, where a gentleman named Ken McKay powerfully wrote about his personal journey, and he graciously recorded it for us. Let's take a listen. I was 10 years old when I took my first sip of beer. It was all very innocent. I was at a cookout, and in those days, guys would share a sip of beer with their son or, you know, with a nephew or something. By the time I was 12, though, I had my first drunk blackout experience, 12 years old. I didn't, you know, I didn't even really like the taste of beer, but as soon as I drank it, I knew why people drank it. Alcohol's effect on me was immediate. It made me feel comfortable, and it made me feel like I was exactly where I wanted to be. And it was downhill from there. In middle school and high school, I spent most of my time learning how to get drunk and get away with it. And I got really good at it. And as time went on, things got worse and worse. Over the years, I, I would surround myself with friends who liked drinking as much as I did. We had a lot of fun together. Uh, our behavior was often dangerous. I got into quite a bit of trouble. Drunkenly crashed cars and hanging out with dangerous people. Uh, waking up in strange places like some stranger's house or someone's yard or a park, even jail. No one was hurt, thank God. I mean, I was hurt. I got drunk and fell off a roof and broke my hip once, but no one else was physically hurt. I hurt a lot of people's feelings, and I lied to a lot of people. The only thing really consistent about me at that time was complete selfishness. Looking back drinking caused the lowest points of my life. And all of this trouble was no one else's fault. I only had myself to blame. It didn't come from some desire to get in trouble. It came from 
doubting myself. I convinced myself and everyone else that I wasn't very smart, that I was the dumb kid, uh, that lowered other people's expectations of me, and then that would give me the excuse to be lazy and not challenge myself. It gave me the excuse to behave badly, and that behavior destroyed my self-confidence even further. And so at 17, I stopped believing I could finish high school, and I dropped out. We're listening to Ken McKay, and we're talking about turning points, and they can happen in our lives at any point. Older, younger, cancer, alcoholism, a car accident, who knows what. So Ken, what did you do next? I had nowhere to go, so I went to a recruiting office and I joined the Army. I wanted to get out of town quickly, and so I joined the infantry because that was the quickest way to to get in. Ultimately, I was saved by two things, an old man and a beautiful woman. And I'll tell you more about the woman later, but the old man was Uncle Sam. We got to Fort Benning at night, and me and the rest of these new soldiers, we signed paperwork and got examined, and they gave us some uniforms, and we signed some more papers, and then they cut off our hair, they shaved our heads, and we went to some barracks to get some sleep before we would start this sort of initiating process again. That first night at Fort Benning, I laid in the top bunk of a metal cot, and I rubbed the back of my newly shaved head and I kept thinking it's like they say about shark skin smooth one way and and rough the other and I said to myself over and over again I won't quit no matter what I'm not going to quit I laid there in the dark rubbing my head and I thought about my father and I imagined where he was at that time what he might be doing what he might think about me And I thought about the shame of quitting high school and really running away from troubles. And I knew right then, I had a moment where I knew that years of drinking had dragged me down. And you could sense Ken was turning things around right here. Let's continue with his story. After we were done processing and getting our equipment, we went out to our training battalions. And the drill sergeants made us line up in rows and dump all of our belongings that we'd brought with us. And, and they said, we, you're, you, know, you can't have any contraband, and this is an amnesty opportunity to take anything that you might have snuck in here and throw them in the trash. And behind us was these steel trash cans. And I was petrified. I didn't know what contraband was. And I wasn't completely sure what they meant by amnesty either. I didn't know what that meant. So I grabbed everything that I had brought with me that the Army didn't issue me when we were in processing, and I picked it up, and I went, and I threw it in one of the trash cans, and a drill sergeant grabbed me from behind and scared the hell out of me, and he yelled at me in my face, envelopes and stationery and stamps are not contraband. Get that stuff out of the trash and get back in line. And so I did so immediately. And that moment has stuck with me in my life because looking back, I see the irony. I was so afraid and so naive. But at the time, I thought I was the coolest guy on the planet. Literally too cool for school. I was afraid of crowds. I thought that everybody knew some secret that I didn't know. I was too insecure to finish high school. 
and it was a contradiction that I never saw. I was really at that moment the coolest failure going. Still, the Army gave me some confidence and I excelled. In the field exam during basic training, I passed each task perfectly. And there were around 50 or 60 tasks, like setting up a radio, installing a landmine, treating a sucking chest wound, and I did all of them perfectly, one after the other. And only a few of us, of the 120 or 130 guys in that battalion, uh, accomplished that. And for the first time, I was proud of myself. And I began to wonder if I'm actually stupid. And when we come back, more of Ken McKay's story, our Turning Point series. And again, it can happen to any of us. It has happened to any of us. And it will happen more than likely again. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Ken McKay's story, when we come back. This is Our American Stories, and we're back with our Turning Point series. And Ken McKay sharing his story of starting drinking at 10 years of age, having his first blackout experience at the age of 12, dropping out of high school at 17, and the one place he could go that would become his turning point, the United States military, where it turns out he excelled, leading him to think, maybe I'm not as stupid as I thought. Let's return to Ken McKay's story. I was deployed to Korea. I spent some time on the demilitarized zone there. And my first sergeant in my, in my battalion in Korea once said to me, you know, McKay, you're a field soldier. I never complained, which in the Army and elsewhere, I've come to learn is a hugely important trait. I would work all day and night. I would always do more than asked. We needed sandbags filled one day while we were up on the DMZ. I stayed when everyone else left to eat and filled bags alone at the bottom of this sandy hill. And one night we had to qualify everybody on a particular weapon and I stayed up all night. Nobody had to ask me. I used night vision to score everyone and coached those through with difficulties. My first sergeant was, he was an experienced soldier. And he knew I'd misbehave if I had free time. That's what he meant by being a field soldier. He took my pass so I couldn't leave base. He, he, he protected me from myself. A Korean lady in the village near our base, it was Camp Hovi, Korea. And she loaned guys money for drinking when your pay was gone for a fee. I went to see her once and she wouldn't loan me any money. She ignored me and I wondered why. And sometime later, I found out that my first sergeant had gone to the village and told her to stay away from me and not loan me anything. Again, he was protecting me from myself, and he was one of the best men I ever knew. He knew me when I didn't know myself. He took no excuses. His name was Thomas J. Griffin III. If I could ever thank him, I would. Thomas J. Griffin III, I think you just got your thanks. And by the way, he protected me from myself. He took my pass. And my goodness, you can hear the, the, the thankfulness. One of the best men I ever knew. Let's continue. 
the army was it was really great to me, but it didn't stop me from drinking. It didn't cure my 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 problems or anything. It taught me an important lesson though that if I put to my mind to something, there was nothing I couldn't accomplish. When I got out of the army, I was twenty after three years. I returned home and got a job at a furniture store, and the owner of the place told me I should go to college. I never thought about that. I had finished high school while I was in the army, so I went to a library in my town and I got a book on schools, and I applied to those I thought I could get into. I ended up at a small school in North Carolina where I didn't even know if I could pass a class. But it seemed like the right thing to do. It seemed like the thing my peers were doing, and so I did it. I had no idea what my ability was. After all, I was a high school dropout. Like the army, I threw myself at it, not knowing if I could succeed, but again, determined not to quit. It was about that time that I met a beautiful woman. Her name was Mary, and I fell in love with her, and I still thank God for her every day. And Ken continues with what this woman, this beautiful woman, Mary, did for him. She lived in my hometown in Rhode Island, and we were the same age, but she acted like an adult, and she didn't do the same kind of things that I did. I needed to grow up, and she provided a great example. The Army had laid some groundwork, but it was Mary who really helped me change. After college, I moved back to Rhode Island, where Mary and I were married shortly after. The economy was bad. But my self-doubt was receding, and with Mary's support, I applied to law school and was accepted. After my first year, I was on the law review. I graduated from law school, took the bar exam, and passed. My first job was at a small law firm in Rhode Island where I met a wonderful man who became a mentor to me. He had been in politics, and he introduced me to a guy who wanted to run for governor. So I met with Don Kachiri over a BLT at a local restaurant. And after a few minutes, I thought, this is exactly the kind of person that should be governor. He was a long shot, and he didn't have a lot of help. And I knew I was going to put in a lot of hours as his campaign manager. But I agreed to do it, and we got started. And he won. It was historic. I became his chief of staff, and... I went on to run his successful re-election a few years later. From there, I went to a big law firm. That was people's expectation at the time. That's what you did. And I did it, but I only did it for the money. Remember this. When you do something solely for the money, it's rarely worth the money. So true. And he had escaped living for the alcohol. And that didn't end well. And he was learning that just doing something for dollars, well, that's never going to end well either. Thankfully, Ken escaped the trap of living for money. And here's the final portion of his remarkable turning point story. I went back to the thing that gave me the most satisfaction. I got back into politics. I helped win several governor's races across the country. I held senior roles in national political organizations. I managed budgets of hundreds of millions of dollars. I'd never imagined the possibility of any of these successes in my adolescence. I even managed a presidential campaign. 
Despite great opportunities and experiences, some successes and achievements in my life, I spent a lot of my life not believing in myself. But I still found a life. I found a meaningful purpose. And I found the greatest thing I have, a beautiful wife and three kids. So after everything I've learned, I'm going to try to give you a couple of pieces of advice. First and foremost, at any point in your life, make good choices. I learned that lesson the hard way. If you're considering something and you have that twinge that it might be wrong, it's probably really wrong. And I would suggest you don't do it. Or at least really take a long pause and think through what might be the matter. Because making the wrong choices can haunt you. Wrong choices can cause regrets and sorrow. And trust me, those feelings are hard to shake. The right choices, on the other hand, will serve you well your whole life. Second, don't waste time worrying about what other people think. My self-doubt drove me to bad decisions when I was younger, followed by lifelong regrets. Be yourself. Other people will respect you for it. Third, be fearless. Believe in yourself, trust yourself, and make your own decisions. We are all stronger, smarter, and more capable than we think. Once you have that knowledge, it's powerful. Some of you are going to experience self-inflicted difficulties during your lives. Some of you are going to doubt yourselves. But you should know that if you decide to follow those pieces of advice, you can overcome anything to find happiness. And such good advice and hard-won wisdom from Ken McKay, who turned his life around thanks to a sergeant, a first sergeant, to a bride. And by the way, that guy at the furniture store who said, son, you need to be going to college. You know, all these things we can do for people, we don't even know it, but we can. The power of our words, the power of our example, the power of our leadership. And thank you for sharing that story with us, Ken. And if you have a turning point story, give us a call at 844-627-8255. Record your story there or leave us your information and we'll help you record it. Once again, that's 844 844- 627-8255. And by the way, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Another one of our favorites was Bill Bachman's Turning Point story. He left a partnership in a law firm in Washington, D.C., and not just any law firm, Williams & Connolly, one of the great law firms in this country. And he did it all because something was missing in his life, and he decided to coach Division Three sports at Catholic U University. And my goodness, at Catholic University, and what a difference in his life. This is Lee Habib, Turning Point, Ken McKay's story. Your stories here on Our American Stories.
jazz babies in the first row. to Lady Gaga and she is singing with Tony Bennett live and what an improbable pair and we're about to talk about the improbable life of Irving Berlin and how one immigrant came to write so many of America's greatest anthems Berlin did it without anyone's help and without any formal music education the man wrote God Bless America in 1918 while serving in the army but it didn't lead to anything. He set it aside for 20 years and returned to it only in 1938 after Hitler rose to power. Kate Smith recorded it. The rest was history. The song became America's unofficial national anthem along with America the Beautiful. That would have been enough success for any music mortal. But this man was writing for the ages. He also went on to write one of the most popular songs of all time, White Christmas. And here's the most remarkable part of this man's story, Irving Berlin. The man who gave us God Bless America was not born in America. He was born in Russia. The man who gave us White Christmas was not a Christian. He was a Jew. Only in America. If you made his life story into a movie, critics would say it was ridiculous. It is that American. Berlin came to America like so many before him, seeking refuge from religious persecution. He was born Israel Berlin. On May 11, 1888, one of eight children born near Mogilev in what is now the Republic of Belarus. His father, a cantor in a synagogue, uprooted his family after their village was destroyed in a violent anti-Semitic pogrom. His family settled in New York City in 1893, and according to his biographer Lawrence Bergreen, as an adult, Berlin admitted to no memories of his first five years in Russia except for one. His father, quote, lying on a blanket by the side of the road, watching his house burn to the ground. By daylight, the house was in ashes. That was not the last tragedy to befall this young man. His early life had more sad stories than the Old Testament, none worse than the loss of his father when he was merely eight years old. While few other options were available, the young man took to the streets of New York to help support his family. To say those streets were tough would be an understatement. A poverty the likes of which poor people in America today would not even recognize gripped the Lower East Side of Manhattan, where young Irving lived. Rudyard Kipling, the great British writer, thought it was the worst poverty he'd ever seen, worse than the slums of Bombay, the poverty he witnessed when he visited the tenements of the Lower East Side. But he was impressed by the Jewish families in particular, noting the young immigrant boy saluting the stars and stripes. Kipling wrote, quote, these immigrant Jews are a race that survives and thrives against all odds and all flags, which proves the point that is often lost on us today. You can have very little in material wealth, but still not be poor. 
By the time he was 20, Berlin had stumbled by accident upon his life's work. He took a job as a waiter in Chinatown, where he discovered that his tips skyrocketed when he hummed various songs of the day. Singing cover tunes a cappella at dinner tables soon turned into a stint at songwriting. He collaborated with friends at first and soon got his first break as a staff writer with a music publishing house in New York City. His meteoric rise as a songwriter in Tin Pan Alley and then on Broadway started in 1911 with Alexander Ragtime Band's which would become a hit by many artists, including Bessie Smith, Louis Armstrong, Bing Crosby, and, of course, Ella Fitzgerald. Come on in here, come on in here, Alexander's a ragtime fan. Come on in here. Come on in here, it's the best band in the land. They can play a bugle call like you never heard before. So natural that you want to go to war. That's just the best band. Well, am oh, my honey lamb. Come on along, come on along. Let me take a you by the hand. Up to the man, up to the man. Who's the but ragtime music was not where Berlin's heart was. He wanted to create his own version of American music, one that embraced and appealed to the diversity and richness of his adopted nation, so that his music would be accessible to as many Americans as possible. He described his aspirations. Quote, My ambition is to reach the heart of the average American, not the highbrow nor the lowbrow, but that vast intermediate crew which is the real soul of the country. The highbrow is likely to be superficial, overtrained, and supersensitive. The lowbrow is warped and subnormal. My public is the real people. Berlin made good on that mission, creating the richest catalog of popular music by any songwriter in American history. It has been said that writing a song is a bit like giving birth, laborious and miraculous. Berlin gave birth to over 1,500 songs. He credited his productivity to an inborn work ethic. Sal Bornstein, Berlin's publishing manager, observed that, quote, it was a ritual for Irving to write a complete song, words and music, every day. He told anyone who would listen that he, quote, did not believe in inspiration, end quote. His most successful compositions were the result of work. Berlin said once, I do most of my work under pressure. When I have a song to write, I go home at night, and after dinner, about eight, I begin to work. Sometimes I keep at it until four or five in the morning. I do most of my writing at night. This he would do after a long day working on rehearsals for plays already in production. Few men write so many songs, let alone so many standards. Fewer still write songs that become a part of our national identity. And we're about to play some of those. The first, and what's remarkable about these songs, is the range of artists that cover them. This is the great Patsy Cline, a country and western artist, singing the classic Berlin song, Always.
Astaire performed a remarkable cover of Putting on the Ritz. Have you seen the well-to-do up and down Park Avenue on that famous thoroughfare with their noses in the air? High hats and arrow collars, white spats and lots of dollars, spending every dime for a wonderful time. If you're blue and you don't know where to go to, why don't you go where fashion sits? Putting on the Ritz. And of course, when you hear Fred Astaire, you instantly think of Taco's version. Where Rockefellers walk with sticks or umbrellas in their mix. Putting on the Ritz. Have you seen the well-to-do? Well, maybe not. I don't know the wall really clamoring for more taco but we're going to go out with taco singing Irving Berlin because that's the range of this man's music and as always this is brought to you by the great people at Hillsdale College go to hillsdale.edu to see their great online courses and learn all the things that matter in life from the arts to religion to political philosophy it's all there and again this day in history Irving Berlin was born and always this day in history brought to you here on Our American Stories by Hillsdale College. Trying hard to look like Gary Cooper Come let's mix where Rockefellers walk with sticks or umbrellas in the midst Trying hard to look like Gary Cooper If you're blue and you don't know where to go to, why don't you go where fashion sits? Different types who wear a day coat, pants with stripes or cutaway coat, perfect fits. This is Lee Habib and we're talking about the improbable life of Irving Berlin and the improbable use of Irving Berlin music in Young Frankenstein. A terrific scene. So we were talking about so many of these incredible standards that Irving Berlin wrote. We wanted to play just a few more for them and all the artists across the generations that interpreted these great songs. Here's the great Frank Sinatra singing How Deep Is the Ocean. How much do I love you? I'll tell you no How deep is the ocean? How high is the sky? How many times a day do I think? You almost can't stop playing that song once it starts. Let's move forward to Diana Krall and her version of Let's Face the Music and Dance. There may be trouble ahead 
But while there's music and moonlight and love and romance, let's face the music and dance. Berlin did all of this without formal musical training. He could not read or write music and taught himself to play piano. He played almost entirely in the key of F sharp because, as with so many self-taught musicians, it was easier for his untrained fingers to play the elevated and well-spaced black keys without hitting any wrong or white keys by accident. Quote, the black keys are right under there under your fingers, Berlin would tell people unabashedly. The key of C is for people who study music. Indeed, Berlin often boasted of his ignorance of music and claimed that it gave him a competitive advantage. Because he didn't know the rules of songwriting, he explained, he was, quote, free to violate them. Bing Crosby's version of White Christmas, well, it sold over 50 million copies. And that's an astounding number. And it's an astounding story. A poor, fatherless Jewish immigrant from Russia writes America's most beloved Christmas song. That's a story the ACLU couldn't wrap its mind around. Let's hear from Bing. Of a white Christmas Just like the ones I used to know Where the treetops glisten And children listen To hear It was on to that other anthem, Kate Smith, introduced America to God Bless America on her radio show on Armistice Day in 1938, and we have her introduction to that song right here. It's going to be my great, very great privilege to sing for you a song that's never been sung before by anybody, one that was written especially for me by one of the greatest composers in the music field today. It's something more than a song. I feel it's one of the most beautiful compositions that was ever written. A song that will never die. The author, Mr. Irving Berlin, the title, God Bless America. Well, there was the introduction, and boy, was Kate right. The song was originally written in the form of a prayer by Berlin, one seeking God's blessing and peace for this country. Over the years, the beautiful opening verse has been scrapped by most singers and by most schools, though one singer who always includes it is the great Irish singer Ronan Tynan. Here are the words that open the song. While the storm clouds gather far across the sea, let us swear allegiance to a land that's free. Let us all be grateful for a land so fair as we raise our voices in this solemn prayer. Swear allegiance, a land so fair, solemn prayer. No wonder we don't hear that verse much anymore. Let's hear Ronan Tynan's version. While the storm clouds gather far across the sea, let us swear allegiance to a land that's free. 
What a great place to hear that song in a hockey arena like Madison Square Garden. Berlin's music transcended multiple generations and religions, races, ethnicities, too. It transcended musical styles and time. Blue Skies, for instance, reached the top of the charts when it was written in 1927. It made its way back to the charts in 1978 when Willie Nelson covered it. Berlin wrote direct musical poems aimed straight at the heart. In the 1946 musical Annie Get Your Gun, Annie Oakley laments falling in love with Frank Butler in the Berlin gem I Got Lost in His Arms. And she says, well, let's hear Tony Bennett sing the beginning of this song. I got lost in her arms And I had to stay Dark in her arms, and I lost my way from the dark came a voice, and it seemed to say there you. The words, and of course, Bennett was just switching genders here. I got lost in her arms and I had to stay. It was dark in her arms and I lost my way. From the dark came a voice and it seemed to say, There you go, there you go. How I felt as I fell, I just can't recall. But her arms held me fast. It broke the fall. And I said to my heart, as it foolishly kept jumping all around, I got lost, but look what I found. America got lost in Irving Berlin's music, and from the dark, we can still hear that voice soothing us. Irving Berlin kept to himself and made few public appearances during the last decade of his life, except for a very rare appearance to mark his 100th birthday at Carnegie Hall. If you ever get a chance, just put in Frank Sinatra, Carnegie Hall, Berlin, and 100. And my goodness, wait till you hear what Frank does for Irving. He died one year later from natural causes at the age of 101. The improbable life of Irving Berlin, the man who gave us White Christmas, 
God bless America. Here on Our American Stories, this is Lee Habib, and let's go out with Tony Bennett. And I got lost in her arms. I can't recall But her arms held me fast And it broke the fall And I said to my heart As it foolishly kept jumping all around I got lost But look what I